This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today I'm talking to Chris Jones. He is the author of The Swine Republic, Struggles with the Truth About Agriculture and Water Quality. Uh, I really, I, I have enjoyed this book tremendously, although it is also upsetting in many ways. Uh, but it's nice to have you here, Chris. Thank you for coming on. All right. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. So um, just for people who may not know, this is a book about Iowa. Um, you know, it's it's uh, clearly on the cover. Um, one would know. But since people here can't see, I'm going to let them know that it's this. You're from Iowa. Um, you you live in Iowa. And this and your work has been in Iowa for a long time. And this book is about Iowa. And I have to say, I, you know, I've been to Iowa a number of times. Uh, I'm not just a, you know, like a flyover person. I've been there. I have friends in Iowa. I've been to Iowa City a number of times. I learned so much from your book about Iowa. It's just almost scary. Um, how I feel like I didn't know anything about Iowa until I read your book. So. Well, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, you know, <laughs> as as you say, this can be a flyover a place for a lot of people, but you know, this is a an important place for the country. Uh, as you know, you know, the Iowa caucuses have played quite a role uh, in our country's uh, selection of our president, uh, going back to the 1970s, and of course. All the presidential candidates that come here, you know, kneel down at this altar of agriculture and especially corn ethanol. And so despite our sort of flyover status and our relatively modest population, the state has played um, an important role in national politics for sure. Well, and also, as you allude to, an important role in feeding and powering the country. But as you talk about in the book, now we should probably go back one step. You're a scientist, and you've been a, a water mostly. I mean, you've worked in water, and that's that's an important part of the story. So maybe you could tell a little bit about your background quickly as a scientist, hydrologist. Um, you know, uh, to kind of um, set up what we're going to talk about. Sure. So my training is as a chemist. I'm an analytical chemist. I have a PhD in analytical chemistry. Uh, but I spent most of my career uh, working on uh, water um, issues and water topics. And so I uh, worked for a commercial testing laboratory. I did consulting work for water and wastewater utilities. I worked at the Des Moines Water Works, which is a municipal water utility in Iowa's largest city. And then I also worked at the Iowa Soybean Association uh, doing projects with farmers to try to improve water quality before going to the University of Iowa, where I worked as a research engineer studying contaminant hydrology in agricultural landscapes. And so I've been retired for about three months now. And so, yes, my uh, perspectives have been drawn from various career stops that I've had and how I've, I've observed these issues here in Iowa. And so um, it's no secret to us that live here that, you know, our water is um, polluted and, um, you know, mostly from Corn Belt agriculture, the production system here of Corn Belt agriculture that focuses on uh, corn and soybean and then livestock. And so 
Iowa is a very intense livestock production state. We're the number one hog state. We have 25 million hogs at any one time. We're the number one egg state. We have 80 million chickens. We also have a sizable beef industry, a sizable dairy industry, and also other animals like turkeys. And so the level of production here is very intense, and that has had consequences for our environment. Right. And so... Yeah, th- this book comprises like many, many articles that you've written kind of sequentially as a blog. And so there's probably more than we could ever cover in a short, you know, conversation. But I thought it was really important to talk about some of the things that people who are not from Iowa wouldn't necessarily know. And I figure that everybody, you know, maybe more people in Iowa who are your, that's your audience in a lot of ways. Um, knows what you're talking about, but the general public, I mean, they're going to be like me. Like this is mind boggling information that you have set out here. One being, I'll just start at the very beginning. I had no idea that the landscape of Iowa had been so manipulated by, um, agriculture, essentially by the settlers uh, from such an early point in time. You know, I, I just sort of, I've been to Iowa. I think this is what it looks like. They didn't have a clue that they had essentially drained the entire state and manipulated the water system for agricultural purposes because it was too wet in a lot of places to grow. That's number one. I mean, that's like a mind-boggling notion right there. So that what you're working with in the state from the very beginning or in the geography is a, a man-made landscape that is like an engineering project and not necessarily planned with the with thinking about what the downstream effects would be. Literally, the downstream effects would be. Um, I mean, that's one part that I think is really important. So an engineering project is a good way to describe it. And so we say here, this is the most altered landscape on earth. Um, you know, we talk about um, industri- places that are industrialized. Well, our entire state is industrialized. You know, all our land is being used, you know, as what we call a working land. And so 85% of our land is in some sort of agricultural production. And to get that, we had to engineer the state, as you say, by engineering, what we mean mainly is a control of water. And so we see where we farm in dry places, Central Valley of California, for example, or, you know, maybe Arizona or Western Kansas, we engineered it for irrigation. Here we engineered it to get rid of the water. And we, we lowered the water table four feet across tens of thousands of square miles. And I think, you know, the average person, as you say, has no, it's it's hard to get your head around that unless you've really studied it. And I would say most of the people that live here really don't understand it either or don't know about it. Right. Well, and so, and of course, it defines everything that you talk about in the book. It's the basis for what we might call the problems that you talk about. It's not just the fact of the water issues and the contamination and the runoff from agriculture polluting water, but it's the fact that the um, waterways have been changed so that you, I think the number now, I wrote this down and I can't remember. Oh yeah. The wetland removal essentially 
you go from 7.6 million acres to 30,000 acres of wetland. As you said, that's like, that, that's a massive engineering project. And I think what you just said is really important that it's an industrialized landscape, but we think of it as an as rural, you know, there's a sort of, and, and you highlight this in many ways throughout the book that there is this, uh, a kind of fantasy of, uh, agriculture in our minds, even for people who know better that, and they want to take advantage of that fantasy, the sentimental notion, romantic notion of small agriculture defining America, allied Jefferson, you know, you're talking about a reduction in the number of farms and an increase in the number of animals. That is an astounding set of numbers. And you, you said 25 million hogs, right? Right, 25 million hogs. And so we have packing plants in Iowa that pack a million pounds of pork per day. Okay. <laughs> and that, we have a lot of those. And so that tells you how much, you know, meat is being produced here. And so, yes, we do romanticize it. And, you know, if you're a baseball fan, look, Field of Dreams baseball game last year that was. Uh, played, I think it was the Yankees and White Sox and, you know, the field out there and the sun setting over the corn. And it provides this sort of picturesque, romantic view of Iowa. But, you know, what we don't um, see is that we've taken a system here with a perennial system with hundreds of individual species in the tall grass prairie and the wetland ecosystems. And we've uh, condensed that down to two species, Right corn and soybean. And, and so, you know, that has had consequences for, you know, our surrounding environment, the native species that uh, no longer live here, and then the impaired water and the soil erosion and some air pollution too. And, and so this idea of the rugged agrarian sort of scratching out a living, you know, against all odds, fighting the weather and the markets and all those sorts of things. I mean, that doesn't really exist now. I mean, this is big, big business, big business. Right. And you also mentioned, I think, and this is important, because this is something that non-agriculturalists probably don't know about, and that's crop insurance. You know, you mentioned it in various articles, but I think it's it it is kind of a revelatory thing to realize that what you said is that essentially there's no risk for big ag, which means that there's no incentive for them to change. That's right. We've removed the risk, but not all of ag, but, you know, four or five crops, corn and soybean, uh, wheat, cotton, and uh, rice. And so we've taken the risk away from that. And and so, you know, these are, (laughs) and we can ask why, because, these are multi-million dollar operations. And so there's a lot of wealth tied up in these farm operations here. Millions of dollars of wealth an individual farmer can have here. And so why should we indemnify what that individual is doing and at the same time guarantee a market for the crop? Uh, In the case of corn, uh, we have the renewable fuel standard here in this country that requires uh, corn ethanol to be blended into uh, petroleum. And so we've guaranteed a market for corn and we've indemnified its production. Right. And, and not to mention that the corn that goes into your uh, gas tank 
you know, that's actually a net negative energy um, loss there. So you basically are using more energy to produce the, the energy than it creates. And it produces more greenhouse gases than just pure gasoline. And so why are we doing this? And it's because, you know, corn is a high input crop. It takes a lot of money to plant a, a corn crop. And so you have the seed, which is very expensive. The GMO seeds are very expensive. The fertilizer uh, that's purchased, uh, the machinery, the equipment. And then following harvest, we have the grain storage and the transportation and um, all these other things that sort of juice the system. Corn juices the system economically. And so that's why we do it. It's not because you know, corn is a great food for us or even a great um, feedstock for producing fuel. We do it because corn is a high input crop and it juices the economic system. Right. And of course, you know, then we're stuck with, um, as you point out, high nitrogen input because corn, and now you've gone to a, essentially monocropping corn and soybeans. And not only do you have more disease, which means you and more pests, you have to have more chemicals and you have to use fertilizer because corn sucks the nitrogen out of the ground. And then next year when you want to plant it, you have to artificially, you know, there's, they've given up on the notion of crop um, rotation and um, of cover crops to feed the soil because it's too valuable uh, to them to, to do what they're doing. So, I mean, you look at, um, you know, 50 or 75 years ago, what did we have? Well, we did have quite a cattle industry here in Iowa. And what did they eat? Well, they ate forage crops. They ate forage crops like alfalfa and the clovers. And, but now they eat corn. And, you know, when we concentrate cattle and other livestock into these confined systems, into the CAFOs, well, that enabled farmers to go to all cash crops all the time. And so these forage crops like alfalfa and clovers, um, you know, they produce better environmental outcomes than the cash crops. And so the confining animals into these um, uh, densely populated systems went hand in hand with adoption of monoculture uh, cropping. And so that that's a big problem. And then you all, but the other problem is waste. As you, uh, I mean, this was another part of this that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, frightening also is the amount of waste and the fact that, you know, you can't, I, I never even occurred to me that you wouldn't, of course, it's too expensive to truck fertilize, I mean, tr truck manure all over the place. Um, <laughs> I do remember working on a farm when I was a teenager and one of my jobs was shoveling horse manure out of barns, you know, to collect, put on the ground. But nobody would do that today. It's like not even going to, it's never going to happen. So let's talk about hogs. And so you think about a hog um, that's roaming around the farmyard and it's defecating on the ground. And that can be, you know, accumulated and applied as a solid. But then you think of hogs in a confined system where 5,000 hogs are in a CAFO and they're excreting their waste onto a grid that lies above a pit. And then they're also urinating into the pit. And then all the wash water that's used in the facility also goes into the pit. 
And now all of a sudden that waste is a liquid, okay? And the nutrient content of it is rather dilute compared to the solid waste of a, you know, a hog 50 years ago or a cow. And so since it's a liquid, that makes it very expensive to haul it. Um, and so they can only haul it about 10 miles economically. If they've got to haul it more than that, then they might as well use commercial fertilizer. So in essence, we've concentrated all this waste into the hands of just a few producers. In 1980, the average hog farmer in Iowa raised 200 hogs. Now the average hog farmer raised 5,000. And so the waste is hot, what we call hot, because it's liquid and it becomes this sort of colossal challenge to handle this in an environmentally sound way. And so that's what this transition of animals from these more simpler systems to the concentrated systems has done. Yeah, you mentioned, I think, um, that this, I forget what the number was, but it's, I think the the popular, oh yeah, you have the, and you came up with a, a really nice formula for this, but it's the waste equivalent of 134 million people. Yeah. So we think of Iowa as being a low population state. You know, you have what three million people in a pretty three million, big, yeah. um, and you know that also that also feeds the myth that uh, you know it's rural countryside and um, no big deal. Except that you really have the equivalent of 134 million people um, shitting. Uh, yeah, on, that's on right. We have the fecal, we have the fecal yeah. waste of three Californias here. And so we have to manage that and get rid of it. And so none of that waste is treated, right? <laughs> Human waste is treated at a wastewater treatment plant or, you know, a septic tank. Uh, but none of this animal waste is treated or stabilized. And so it's applied, you know, when it's hot, as I said, where it can do a lot of environmental damage. And so, you know, how can we get the environmental outcomes that we want when we're when we have production at that scale, it's very difficult. Right. And I think a theme throughout your book, I don't want to miss this, aside from these kind of, the kind of background of massive issues that, you know, you feel like are these, how do we solve these problems? You know, they're like, but you also talk a lot about the things that stop us from solutions on a, you know, you, cause you've worked in the, you know, on the ground, literally, you know, in the, you know, in the water um, uh, management areas, you know, that you, you're up against so many impediments. Um, it's, you know, the human desire not to change is one thing, or the, and the financial reward system is another. Um, but it's also, it's sort of like this willful denial uh, and the ability to act as if this is not going to really have an effect on your life. Um, it's just hard to understand how, well, I mean, you live it, um, every day. Um, and the frustration in your heart comes through in your, you have a really nice style of writing. I have to say that is, um, uh, you know, you're not like hot under the collar yelling and screaming. It's more like, um, uh, more human, but you're still talking about some really big problems that you're obviously frustrated by. <laughs> well, you know, this is a quality of life issue, right? And so there's 3 million people here, but there's only 80,000 that farm. 
And so, you know, the vast majority of people here are not farming. And so if we're going to live here and do other things, whatever they might be, you know, do we want to sentence people that live here to this, a life of, you know, living in a polluted environment? And, you know, my, um, you know, I'm from Iowa, as you said, and I think, you know, we deserve better, those of us that don't, don't farm. And yeah, I try to not uh, bash uh, too hard, bash people too hard, although there are certainly people that would disagree with you and what you said there. But um, I think, you know, we have some things here that are really entrenched some behaviors that are entrenched and some attitudes that are entrenched and some ideas that are entrenched. And so sort of dislodging that entrenchment in a way that can produce better outcomes for all of us of I, as Iowans, you know, it's, it's a big challenge for sure. And so, well, yes. It's not just Iowa, you know, it's, it, it, you it's know, a lot of your water, your water ends up in the Mississippi river. And that's right, that's right. downstream, and it affects not only the people who live along the Mississippi, but all the people at the bottom, and then the uh, the fish and the animals in the in the Gulf. It's like you know we're all connected uh, ultimately, and of course we're connected in so far as we consume uh, soy products and corn products and pork. Um, you know, we're all related to, and some of us, you know, you could say, well, we're part of the problem, you know, that because we're, it's a, it's a consumption thing. You know, it's sort of like saying to drug dealers, it's all your fault. We're going to shut you down. But what about the consumer? You know, the, the demand creates the problem on one level. Now it's a complicated system, but it's feeding um, a, a kind of modernized style of food distribution and lifestyle too it's so you know on some level on some level you are living in the uh in the middle of that industrial system that feeds our entire society yeah and you know you make a good point here with our consumer choices and our consumer choices i mean they are important but you know as individuals, can we just stop eating pork and all of a sudden things are going to change in Iowa? Well, of course they're not because so much of this pork goes to China and Vietnam and other places. And the renewable fuel standard sort of dictates uh, this use of ethanol. And so our choices of uh, as consumers are certainly important and do send a message, but we really need policy. We need policy that's going to change uh, the decision framework that the industry uses. And so, uh, you know, what can we do? Can we design a system for human nutrition and for environmental outcomes? Do we want that sort of system or do we want a system that's designed for commerce? And right now we have a system that's designed for commerce. And so, you know, the point I would like to make is, hey, let's look at what other systems we could um, design and adopt here that would enhance our condition in this country for human nutrition and enhance our environmental outcomes. Do you say what 
when you when you say that, I immediately think of the difficulty that you have, as you alluded to, you know, the kind of entrenched attitude um, part of things where um, getting farmers who are large scale producers to think in terms of change really hard because the, you know, as you all talked about earlier, their investment in this system is massive. It's sort of like trying to imagine, you know, turning a battleship or an aircraft carrier. Um, it's built to go in a certain direction at a certain speed, and it won't do other things. You know, it doesn't turn fast. <laughs> and it's really hard to figure out how you could encourage and incentivize that kind of change. Yeah, so the average age of a farmer in Iowa is 60 years old, and that's not exactly a demographic that's you know, real receptive to change on anything, right? And so I say all the time, the problem isn't that farmers are evil. The problem is that they're human beings. And they're making the same decisions that many of us would make given the same set of circumstances. Being that the case, we need policy that's going to create a framework for decision-making that's going to incentivize different decisions. For example, if we were to make, you know, farmers uh, or the landowner responsible for the pollution, leaving, you know, an acre of corn, if we made them fiscally and legally responsible for that pollution, would they choose to grow something different? You know, maybe they would. If we made a 5,000 uh, head uh, hog CAFO responsible for the pollution that they're generating, would that farmer have 5,000 hogs? Well, maybe not. Maybe say, well, maybe 1,000 is a better number for me. And so we need those, we need those frameworks in place. You're, you're actually right on the subject dearest to my heart, and that is that environmental costs are never counted in the economics of anything we do. And it's basically um, treats the earth as a, a, an invisible dumping ground uh, un with uncounted value. So if the earth, if the earth cost could be calculated into the behavior, yes, it might change some of that or else it would. And this is the other part, part of it. That's also problematical will raise the price. So the argument would be, well, if I change my behavior to account for the cost, the true cost, I don't push that cost onto those 3,990,000 920 people that are not the farmers, right? The, it's everybody else who's paying that cost right now because, you know, their taxes will cover the cost of cleanup or not or whatever. So the farmer is going to say, well, if I bear that cost, I raise my prices, I raise my prices and people, the system is not built to accommodate that price change, then I'm out of business. So there's another, um, it, it's not even a, a, a behavior there. It's you have to design the system to enable uh, that other the the economics being changed. So, and uh, you know, it begs the question: to, Should we put this all on the shoulders of the farmers? And the answer is no. And so, you know, the farmers are sort of at the bottom level of the value chain, and. And so if we started to require different environmental outcomes, yeah, the question is who will bear the, the financial a burden of that? You know, will it be the farmer or will it be McDonald's or will it be Coca-Cola 
or, um, you know, you name it, whoever else is using these uh, products, ConAgra or Bungie or whoever. And, you know, we ought to be able to develop policies that do not throw the entire burden onto the shoulder of the farmer. And so, for example, um, you know, with the um, California Prop 12 that wants the hogs raised in uh, in pens where they have more room to move around, well, you know, who's going to bear the burden of that? Does the pork producer, does a pork farmer need to bear the burden of that or does a packer or whatever? And I'd say, you know, there's ways for us to devise policy that spares the farmer the entire burden of this. No, I think we agree. I think the problem is convincing a large enough people, but I think, you know, maybe, maybe reading your book will get us part of the way there because I think that you approach it in a non-confrontational way, which I think is really important, and that you do recognize that there are a lot of factors involved. There are a lot of people involved. It's really complicated. It's not simple. But I really appreciate that you do believe that there is a potentially positive outcome because it is a really, uh, it, it's necessary. We have to do that. Look, we all know what we're doing here is not sustainable. I mean, even the most, uh, you know, um, even the strongest advocate of the, current production system would have a hard time making the case that what we're doing is sustainable. And so we have the best soil on earth here. Uh, what do we want to do with it? Do we want to continue doing this, which is sort of fun and games, right? That just puts money into rich people's pockets, or do we want to use this re resource that benefits the common good? And I think we need to think about the second thing. I agree with you. I think the common good is what has been lacking to a great extent in the conversation about the common good. So listen, I know we have to end now because we're out of time, but, and there was so many other things I could have asked you about, but I'm really glad we had this conversation. I think the bottom line is I would like to recommend people read this book because you'll learn a lot and um, you'll, you'll find it constructive and useful. Uh, so I hope that people who are outside of Iowa hearing this, conversation will uh, pick up the book because I think it's really worthwhile. Okay. And I, I would add, I would also um, tell people I'm still writing about these topics on my Substack, which is riverraccoon.substack.com. And so if you're interested in reading some stuff there, it's out there. And there is a really good article in the book, a piece in the book about the Raccoon River, which I also... Oh, yeah. I really, I thought that was really well done and really important too, because you cover, you know, it brings in so many elements of the conversation. So that was a really good piece. I wanted to talk about that, but we ran out of time. So the, the book is The Swine Republic. The author's Chris Jones. Subtitle is Struggles with the Truth about Agriculture and Water Quality. I'm David Wilk, the host of Writer's Cast. And thank you, Chris, for being on the show.